Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is another really fun conversation with an excellent producer, Richard James Burgess. Now, I only we only really discussed the music in this one, but I would encourage you to go Google him because his accomplishments are huge. He's invented a lot of things that musicians use. He's on the board of companies. He started companies. He's an academic. He, he invented the terms EDM and New Romantic by the way. So we get into the music though. In the early, late 70s, early 80s, he's the front man for this really quirky synth pop band called Landscape that is in the UK. They have a couple of minor hits. One of them's called Einstein a Go-Go, which has to be heard to be believed, to be honest. Well, eventually he gets into producing. He produces the first two Spandau Ballet albums, and that's really when he starts to earn his bona fides and he eventually becomes this really go-to producer for number one british pop acts that also want to have a little bit of a dance angle and some r&b thrown in so here's a list you guys remember living in a box he produced living in a box he produced king which is why you're listening to the song fish which is the first track off of their steps in time album he produced this album. I love this album, and you'll exp- we exp- you'll learn in the course of this interview why this song is kicking off this interview. There's also Adamant. He worked on Adamant's Strip album. He did Shriekback. He also did some straight up. Oh, oh Kim Wilde is another one. He also did some straight up R&B with like Imagination, uh, Five Star, New Edition. There's legends like Kate Bush and Thomas Dolby involved in all this. Anyway, it's crazy how much stuff he does, and uh, he really kind of has his finger on the pulse of a certain sound right around that time. In fact, that's something that we that discusses that gets discussed in here a few times is that he's the guy that a label is going to when they're trying to kind of break someone or make them bigger in America or take them from the alternative charts to the pop charts. Or whatever. That's why the people are calling Richard James Burgess back in the 80s. So anyway, we get into all of this, but there's also a bunch of other stuff too. And as I said, this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you want to know all of his true accomplishments in the world, go look him up. All right? Uh, You probably heard him on Martin Ware's Electronically Yours podcast a few months ago. He had been on my list for months, years years honestly and i just hadn't gotten around to it and when i heard him on there i thought okay i i got beat i've been too slow i need to go get him on our show too that's what we're doing here anyway richard is a super great guy he called me from his home in new york city now where you're in new york right what part of new york? i am right now i'm based in new york yeah i was born in london grew up in new zealand i'm in new york now i've lived all over la maryland parts of europe That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, Okay. I have to ask you now, when I think of you, I think of mostly all your great production work. I being an American, I had never heard of landscape before. Right. 
And I, getting ready to talk to you, I discovered Landscape, specifically Einstein A Go-Go, which is one of the funniest, weirdest, but also earwormiest songs ever. And I just was thinking, in a parallel universe, had landscape become a bigger deal, we might never have seen or received all the goodness from Richard James uh, Burgess because he might have been a pop star. Was that the original plan? Um, you know, I, the original plan was actually that I really liked playing music and, and I wanted to be a, a studio musician, funnily enough. That was really my goal. And, um, and I achieved that really early on. Sounds like a sort of modest goal, but I was always drawn to the precision of certain studio musicians like Al Jackson Jr. and Benny Benjamin and, um, you know, just, just so many great players, Hal Blaine, you name it. And, um, you know, I, and somehow intuitively, I must have had some kind of, you know, in a clock or something, you know, like it's a perfect time or something like that in my head because I, I, I could tell which records these guys were playing on or a studio musician was playing on because of the, the way it was. So I, I wanted to do that and, and I got into that. And then after a few years, I realized this is great, but you know, the richest person in the room is usually the worst musician in the room, which was usually the artist. You know, they'd come in with an acoustic guitar and they, they, wouldn't, they couldn't read music and they, you know, they often couldn't stay in time and couldn't stay in tune, but the studio musicians were like killing it. So I was thinking, yeah, I need, I need to get me some of that. So you know, uh, and, and I was always playing in bands the whole time, but Landscape was like what we called our Monday night rehearsal band. So, you know, it was like, just played, originally we played all John Walters' compositions. He was an amazing comp composer and arranger, still is. And um, we would just get together and play this stuff. And it was difficult and it was complicated and not easy to listen to even. Um, but gradually that band kind of evolved into being this thing. And I was in another group at the time, Easy Street, which had a yeah. sort of modest size hit in the US. I think it got to number 21 or something like that in Billboard. So it's got somewhere on Billboard. But for whatever reason, our manager chose not to send us to the States. And so it sort of fizzled out. And then they kicked me out of the band. So I was like, oh, well, screw it. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, and hey, I'm still friends with them, but they did. Good. They kicked me out of the band. So, so um, I was obnoxious. It's well, funny, I was listening to Easy Street, and Easy Street couldn't be more different than Landscape. No.
Well, what happened was, Easy Street was this kind of soft rock, early 70s kind of West Coast kind of sounding band. Yeah. And then I was living in London and 76, the British punk thing hit big time with Sex Pistols and Clash and everything. I was like, we need to get more edgy. You know, I mean, this, we're not going to just, you know, this soft rock thing's over, which it wasn't in America, but it was in England. I mean, it just was over, overnight. That's the way things work in, in the UK. And, um, and they, they didn't like that idea at all. And um, so, you know, I was out. And so, you know, I basically said, well, I'm going to just put all my efforts into landscape then. I was still doing studio work. And, and actually quite a few of the guys in landscape were also studio musicians. So, um, and then we, we started winning these awards and we started to get money. And so we were able to go out and play live and we wound up playing like six, seven nights a week. Um, the problem, the, and we had, that was a big hit in England. It was number three, I think, in the UK. It was number one in Spain. It was all over Europe. It was pretty successful, I think, Japan, Australia, New Zealand. Um, but in America, they, they didn't know what to do without guitars. And we were signed to RCA Records. And um, I, I remember visiting the office in New York, actually on 44th Street when I was there with the big RCA studios. And um, they, they, were, they, they just couldn't figure out what to do with it. So I remember even as late as 82, I, I went to them, I said, look, Norman Bates is on heavy rotation on MTV. They're like, yeah, MTV doesn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah. That's literally a quote. They got that wrong. And actually, they went on. They said, there's only a million people watching. I'm like, a million people? That's a lot of people. That's not that bad. Yeah. And, and by the way, all, all, all million people that are paying $9.99 a month, I think it was, at the time to get MTV, they're like committed music fans. Very. So, you know, yeah. But anyway. Wild. You know, well, what could have been, I guess, if those bands had taken off? Now, I think when I think of you, I think of the first real uh, I don't know if claim the fame is the right word, but the first thing that you really start to make your name on are the, are the Spandau Ballet records. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah. 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 Uh, Tony was, has was, been on here before. He's a super nice guy. When you go in and you're these bands, you know, the, the new romantic scene, which I believe you've coined that phrase. Yeah. What's your, what's your job? Is it to, is it to, put these this band that's very creative across to a mainstream audience is it to make them weirder poppier less weird <laughs> what is the what's the mandate for you with a band like spandau ballet actually the mandate as a producer and as a studio musician really is always to make it more more commercially appealing when i say that i mean 
not necessarily puppy sounding because we you know we tend to sort of conflate the concept of popular and commercial with a certain sound these days like bts or something like that but but it really doesn't matter i mean remember there was a time when rem was considered to be commercial and um nowadays if rem came out it probably wouldn't be considered to be commercial and a lot of nine inch nails nine inch nails at one point yeah. they you know and that's it is a pretty odd sounding band but but there was a period of time when that was that was what was on on radio and um so the, the key thing as a producer is you just want to make the band successful you know want to make them some money and you know let them get out on the road and tour and have a really big fan base so that was my brief really as a musician i approached production a little bit differently than some other producers some producers come in and they want to change the band they want to rewrite the songs and or maybe write new songs for them and you give them this glossy sheen i never wanted to do that my thing was what I want to do is I want to take the essence of what you are and I just want to polish it up enough or maybe not even polish it up, but just sort of refine it enough so that it can get on the radio at the time it was all about radio and it can and it can attract a lot of listeners and a lot of sales. These days it would be streams, you know, again, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So that was my thing. I mean, Spandau was a different band. I hadn't changed the band very much. I mean, you know, I sort of, um, I understood what they were trying to do. They were trying to do this kind of, I mean, I remember writing notes about it. It's kind of like a disco bottom and a rock top, you know. Very good. Point. Yes. Perfectly said. So, yes. Like the kick drum was the foot of the bar, very tight. And the snare drum was, you know, not like a disco snare drum, which was very sort of, you know, tight with no ambiance around it. Yeah. Spin out snare drums had ambiance around it. And then, and then, of course, they went on, you know, the third album did a completely different thing with True and Gold and all that right. stuff. Right, right. Which is which is great, you know. So that's what it is. Yeah. I'm curious. I've always found the second half of Diamond so interesting because the first <laughs> half of that album, with um, like, isn't Chant number one on that, stuff like that. Yeah. That's my favorite track that I did with them. Actually. Oh yeah, so good. And then the last few songs get so weird, and uh, I just thought, why? Why did they run out of ideas? Were they trying to be kind of a Bowie thing with like pop songs in the first half and ambient ambient stuff on the second? What was the thinking there? Yeah, it's funny, it's funny you say that. I, I don't exactly know what's going on in Gary's head, but we had a lot of conversations about it, and. You know, he, he he also had this, well, first off, all of those bands, the Blitz bands, they all idolized Bowie. So, True. you know, an album like Low, which was 
you know, exactly what you described, where you've got one side's really weird and the other side's slightly weird. You know, <laughs> um, you know that, 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 you know, I think that probably was a factor. But, but Gary also liked, and it's interesting because he's been out on the road with Source of Call of Secrets, which is Nick Mason from Pink Floyd. So he always had that kind of interest in that kind of, you know, Pink Floyd kind of vibe, even though that wouldn't have been cool to say at the time as part of the New Romantic movement, you know, and that whole blitz thing that happened. But so that was a lot of what was going on in his head. And so I just went with it. You know, I'm like, yeah. you know, the key thing as a producer is in those days, all you really had to do was produce two hits. Yeah. The record. Even one hit off the album sure. was enough. But if you produce two hits and, and the objective was not to make an album you know, for most groups, the objective was not to make an album that was, you know, 10 hit singles. It was yeah. to make two or three hit singles, maybe four or five. I think Michael Jackson was the first one to have four or five hit singles off the album and then make an interesting album that shows yeah. dimensions of the band and, you know, makes, yeah. makes a band you want to go see live. So that, that was the thinking. I mean, yeah, we, we definitely, we definitely geeked out on that. We were yeah. at Jam Studios in North London and there's this huge old ballroom that was a Decca recording studio. And so you could do incredibly crazy things in there with um, just wow. the sound of the room. You know, it was Wow, amazing. I bet. You know, what's <laughs> interesting to me, I made a connection. I, I believe, so I'm not a gearhead at all. And I know that you have invented and been a revolutionary when it comes to a lot of things like drums and keyboards and stuff. And unfortunately, my head doesn't work techno technologically <laughs> like that. But did I read that you kind of, you invented those hexagonal drums yeah, that people that used in the 80s? Mm -hmm, yeah. Be because I mean, what's I, funny, it, let me insert one quick thing real quick, because I want to hear the story about this. The first time I remember seeing those hexagonal drums was on the video to True from Spandau exactly, Ballet. Yeah. Yeah. I was well, probably was 10 years old. And I was like, what? They, they make drums that look like that? So it's an interesting to me that the band that you helped get started it's the first thing I saw, but you didn't produce the album where I where I saw the hexagonal drums for the first time. No, but interestingly, um, and uh, you know, to be honest with you, that was kind of too pop for me. I kind of didn't want to go there because my own career was, you know, sort of, I mean, I think True is amazing. And I think those albums are amazing. Yeah. But, you know, in your own career, it's kind of like if you're an actor, you know, you sort of have to decide, do I want to be known for this or do I want to be known for that? You know, some actors like to cover the gamut they don't like to get typecast and others like to be like yeah this is you know you kind of you, you know i i think these days a lot of music is kind of like a 50s variety show to me you know everybody's dancing in formation and everybody's wearing elaborate gowns and stuff like that and that's not why i got into the music industry right i got into the music industry because of the rolling stones and zeppelin and hendrix and uh sly stone and yeah, you know, there you go. Ray Charles and stuff. You know, it's yeah. it much more gritty what got me into the industry. And I've tried to hang on to that as much as I can in my career. So, um, but actually, chart number one is the first time that the Simmons SDS-5, which is the hexagonal drums that I, I invented, I co-invented really with Dave Simmons. Um, uh, it was my idea and I took it to Dave. And um, I actually have an electronics background electronics training but they built the built the machine and you know i i went to him and said we could we could build an electronic drum that actually sounds functionally like a drum it works it works in the same way that a drum does which i used to say like the kick the kick drum needs to hit you in the gut mm -hmm. 
and the snare drum needs to be like an axe through your head you know <laughs> that was my definition that's uh, great what the sound. I, I didn't need to sound like a real drum set i just yeah. needed to behave like a real drum set sure and um and so um but chart number one was the first time that it was ever recorded using the hexagonal pads because um i actually had made the landscape album using using the um simmons stx5 oh. um and and also a group called shark was there's there's a track called Angel Face and the B-side, which became kind of a cult um, club classic um, called R.E.R.B. But I made that with Rusty Egan, who was the DJ at the Blitz Club. I, I always say Rusty's like the sonic architect of the whole new romantic movement because he he sort of mucked up the way the sound should be using existing records. So yeah. he used landscape stuff. He had Fad Gadget. He had um, you know uh, Roxy Music. He had Bowie. Yeah. Um, you know all the German electronic bands, uh, Kraftwerk, and so on. Um, and Yellow Magic Orchestra, Japanese group. Sure. Um, sure. And um, so Rusty and I worked together on that RERB, and it was actually, you know, through going to the Blitz that I met Spandau. But so we, we made the landscape albums using the electronic drums, but I had realized, because I was also working with computers in, in that mid to late part of the 70s, that the, the um, Roland MCA microcomposer, which was the first music computer, and one of the very first computers actually, could actually trigger the the SDS-5, the, 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 the drum head. Um, and so instead of playing the drums on the landscape stuff and on the on the um, shark stuff, I wound up programming it into the computer and having it trigger it, which was before drum machines came out. Um, but then with Bandau, the, the first production model had come out. I mean, I think the one we used on chart number one was like sort of serial number 0001 or something like that. So we, we recorded that live actually in utopia studios in primrose hill in london john played them on on the spandau valley record so that's the first time that they wow. were ever live and then that's... they used them on true as well okay i um i'm gonna probably bounce around because i have a whole list here of artists you work with that i want to ask you about but when you were talking a minute ago about grit and the singers you mentioned that have some grit in their voices one of the albums you produced that i've always liked is living in a box Distance. 
He's I love that. Singer. What's that? He's an amazing singer. Richard Dobbins, he's an amazing singer. That's what made me think of it because yeah, yeah. he's got that kind of grittiness to his voice. I yeah. um, That song did pretty well. The rest of the band didn't so much. At that point, yeah. I was wondering if, I don't know, like, are, are is this a situation where people are thinking, well, Go West has had some success in the States and Peter Cox has a gritty voice and they're kind of yeah. synth based. Let's see if we can do the same thing with living in a box. And, um, or, you know, know what, how did you I work know, that project? I don't, know what the, I don't know what the thinking was behind signing them, but I, I ran some heavy weather on that record really, because, mm. you know, it, it was, I, I, I loved working with the band. It was really great. That was the only record I made with them. And I, the, the A&R person at the time, who's still in the business and has done very well, he, he had it sort of different. He really wanted it to be like a, a house record, you know. More oh. than that. Now, now I had produced Colonel Abrams, um, Trapped, and um, I'm not going to let and, and yeah. all, all the hits off that Colonel Abrams album, um, which some people consider to be sort of proto house. That's on my list to mention too. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, but I I didn't see Living in a Box like that. I saw Living in a Box more as a sort of blue eyed soul kind of band, you know. And um, and that's how I produced it. And and yeah. interestingly, I think that. You know, um, living in a box, the you know, eponymous um, single, and you know, from that album, is kind of more of a blue-eyed soul track. I agree, to me. and I agree. Um, and I think if they'd have continued on in that direction, um, you know, they might have had more success. But anyway, it is what it is. You know, that's what yeah. happens. It's nature of our business. It's like the conversation about Einstein. You know, it's people, so true. You know, it's so true. I wondered, <laughs> are you there when they think to themselves? We're going to name our band Living in a Box. We're going to have a hit song called Living in a Box. And we're going to name our <laughs> no, album Living in a Box. No, 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 I wasn't at all. I, I did. I mean, at that point in time, I was like really successful as a producer. And, you know, I, I, I would get for every project I could do, I would have at least 10 projects to consider. And it was nerve wracking because sometimes out of the 10, eight of them would be really amazing. You know, and you listen to it and you think, wow, these demos are incredible. Um but you only, there's, there's only so many hours in the day and so many weeks in the year, and you can only do so many. So it was always nerve-wracking what you turned down and what you accepted, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love that record, The Living yeah. Box. It was right up my alley because I was in that kind of – I was living in L.A. at the time when I did it. And, you know, I, I had just I, – I, well, I was living kind of between New York, L.A., and London, but um, I was really plugged into the, the you know, the, the American studio musician scene. I had – great background singers like Lisa Fisher and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it was right up my alley, that record. Yeah. I loved doing that record. And they were, they were fun guys. They, they, Good. they had a blast. I've reached out to them a few times and always been turned down. I'd love to have Richard on here sometime and get, hear his stories. Um, okay. I want to ask you about Adam Ant and the strip album too, right? Because he, as you know, has just had a lot of success finally in the States with goody two shoes and right. I think Phil Collins produced the song stripped, stripped, and you did the he rest, did. right? Like yeah. Puss in Boots and stuff. Yeah.
And yeah. I never understood why it didn't continue because I love that album and those songs. And it kind of made Adam a one hit wonder over here. What was his frame of mind while you were working with Adam? Cause he's had a lot of emotional issues. His career was kind of in a different place. What was that yeah. like? You know, he was, he was a delight to work with. Good. And um, we did it at Abbott studio in, in, in Stockholm, which was a mm. collage studio as it was called probably one of the, best studios I've ever been in. They had, and this was 1983, summer 1983, spent the whole summer in Stockholm. It was amazing. Wow, and, beautiful. Um, and yeah, it was incredible. And the studio was gigantic. And uh, um, they had two 32-track 3M digital reel-to-reel tape machines um, that was state-of-the-art at the time. So it was just an absolute pleasure to work there. Adam was a delight. Um, he was really, um, and Marco, also fantastic. Yeah. He's been on here a couple of times. With. I love Marco. Yeah, they're great. And um, I, I, I tell you, I, I heard a story, and I, and this is, the, you know, I don't, I, I, I can't absolutely verify it because I wasn't in the room. But I heard a story that, you know, Adam used to go into the charts at number one in England, in the UK. I heard that, you know, one day one of the tracks went in at number four, and I heard that someone at the record label said, "Ah, eh, he's finished." Yeah, which is kind of hilarious because really I've had a lot I had a lot of records that went in way below number four that no wound up kidding. You know, in the top five or the top ten. Yeah. Wow. But then you know it's kind of like the way the stock market works, right? You know, yeah. if, it, if it goes up, you know, it could go up like 20% over a period of you know six months, and then suddenly it drops by 0.3 of a percent, and everyone's like, Oh, stock market took a tumble today, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, oh and, my gosh. And, you know, I think that's the way the music industry works a lot. I mean, you know, and it's it's a, it's been it's a tough business to be in in many respects because yeah. to a lot of a lot of to especially the major labels music's kind of a commodity you know it's something that yeah. you know people like me make and and artists make and producers make and and then it's either successful or it isn't and and if it isn't it's next yeah and, and a lot of times you know you know how that thing happens with the stock market where the um you know the people say well i think there's a recession coming so then uh-huh. that, that that causes the recession you know and i think that's what happens with artists a lot of times if, if a label thinks eh, it's probably it's probably getting to that point where it's over for this artist yeah. that can that causes a general sort of ripple of lack of faith throughout the company and i can uh, see that them to die. so I, I you know I, I agree with you i think that was a great album um the, the, those were wonderful songs he was they were both amazing to work with and I certainly had a lot of fun. I mean, Phil was originally, I think they wanted Phil to do the whole album originally, but he could only do the two tracks. So that's why I wound up doing yeah. the rest of the album. Okay. You did Puss in Boots, right? Yeah. Um, God, I can't remember which ones I did okay. now. But yeah, okay. I, did, I did everything else other than Strip and um, one other track on the on Okay. The that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, somewhere along the line, again, going back to the grit and you listing all those great R&B acts that you were so fundamental for you you become kind of an r&b producer yourself with five star and melba moore which is really interesting i also yeah. did you do did you i think you worked with imagination i did yeah lee john lee john's been on here too he's, what he's did you so do with crazy. it he is great what did you do with imagination uh, you know i can't remember now but i i, okay. I did some tracks i did some tracks um I think I did them in LA actually because I was living in LA at that time. But I did five, I was actually living in New York when I contracted to do Five Star. You're my 
And I'd met them in London. I, I remember meeting with them in the front room. I had a funny thing happened to me with Five Star because I met with them and I'm I'm thinking sort of, you know, they're the Jackson Five kind of thing. And yeah. and I said to them, so who do you like? And they said, um, Duran Duran. But, you know, I love asking those questions about artists because that completely shifted my perspective on what they Definitely. were thinking in terms yeah. of what kind of records they wanted to make. But I wound up, it was really cold in New York um, that January. It was January uh, 80, 85, I think, or 86. And so I moved the project to LA and that wound up moving me to LA. I wound up living there for several years. That, they were they were amazing to work with as well. I R&B, you know, black music in general, funk, R&B, you know, hip hop, rap, that's sort of so fundamental to everything I like in music. I mean, I always say I wouldn't yeah. be, I wouldn't be a musician if it wasn't for black music. Yeah. At the same time, you know, I'm not black. So, you know, I, I really enjoy working in R&B and uh, any, 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 working with any form of um, black, yeah. music, black musicians. At the same time, I recognize that it's important, you know, that black producers and black musicians get their space, yeah. that space as well. So totally. at some point I sort of felt like, you know, it was probably better if a black producer wound up producing right. a black act than me producing a black act. Yeah. Although I absolutely love that music and I, I would I would have done just that my whole life if I could. I, I totally get it. Was it the was it the Colonel Abrams stuff that launched you into that genre? What yeah, kind of got was, put you that on that so list? Exciting. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That was my first. That was my first black artist, and you know, he so was so, he was so street when I met him, and that really excited me because that was like you know that's that gritty thing that I really like, and that yeah. kind of really alternative sort of edgy thing that he has, and that's where I really I did actually bring my sort of pop sheen to that. We recorded Trapped as I God I don't remember how long it was eight twelve minutes twelve inch so. And that's kind of nerve-wracking because these were the analog days. We recorded it on 24-track tape, mixed it down to half-inch, I think it was. And um, But, you know, when you record something as a 12-inch, when you record an eight-minute song or 10-minute song, and you know you got to cut it down to three minutes and 20 seconds for a single, um, you never quite know whether it's going to work until you do it. <laughs> you yeah. Know, these yeah. days with digital, you can pretty much cut anything. You can, you can you know, you can always finesse it. <laughs> But with tape, you know, you've got a razor blade and some tape and you cut it. And if the cut doesn't work, 
you're kind of screwed. But it did work. And um, so we had a huge hit with that in England. I think it went to number one in England. Yeah. And it became a real sort of club staple. And I think, you know, was a very early example of, you know, house style music. I remember I ran into Robbie, um, uh, uh, um, Slam Robbie. Oh, yeah. I worked with them a bit from time to time. And I ran into them in Times Square in New York one day walking around. <laughs> and they like, fucking love that. Colonel Abrams thing, that groove, man, you know, you know, that's, that's like, you know, as a drummer and as a producer, if, you know, if you can think of a highlight of your life, it's coming into Sly and Robbie in Times Square and having them tell you they love your groove. That'll do it. That's it right there. Yes. That's that, right? That's right. Did you do something with New Edition? I did. Yeah, I did uh, Kind of Girls We Like. It was kind of one, just one track on that album. They were finishing up the album. They'd written this song. I don't think anybody else wanted to work on it because pretty much the way that worked was it would be the songwriter that would produce the track for the band. And they had this song, and I thought it was a really good song. So I was in L.A. I was actually staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and I got a call. I was sitting by the pool, yeah. and they used to bring you these pink phones on a long cord, you know, and say, it's a coffee. Uh-huh. And, um, and um, so I, I took the call, and they said, you know, do you want to do New Edition? I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah. Rent. Like, well, how about tomorrow? So, <laughs> you know, so I, I, I had to go out and rent a bunch of gear. I remember Michael Bodica, who's a very famous yeah. um, musician, worked with Jack, Michael Jackson and all that. He, he had an MC8 microcomposer because there was only 300 MC8 microcomposers ever made. And I, I can't remember if it was an MC8 or an MC4 that he had. But anyway, I, I rented it and I went into the studio in the valley and we made the track. It was great. Um, were all remember, five of the guys there? All five of the guys were there. I had to send I had to send Bobby Brown back to the hotel at one point because he was being obnoxious. Oh, um, shocker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were feisty. I mean, they were 15 yeah. years old. I don't know how whether they were all the same age, but they were pretty feisty, you know. And yeah. um, they were fun. It was fun. It was really fun. That's great. I'm curious. I had Ronnie DeVoe on here from New Edition. Yeah, and um and I hope I'm not disclosing insider secrets do all five of them literally sing on every song or are there a couple of the guys that don't they're just sort of there for show they all sang on on, okay good the one i produced definitely yeah i mean you know it's that's a great question actually i mean that's the same with five star i mean they're all really good singers i mean denise is the lead singer but 
the, the, they're all great. I mean, Denise is an amazing singer and sure. I mean, incredible. Um, I, I was impressed. I mean, I got good. To, I can tell you, a new edition, they, they, they were good. Yeah. And um, uh, they're definitely great singers. Okay. And I love what I love, by the way, I love what Bobby Brown went on to do. You know, oh, me too. Yeah. And stuff like that it was amazing. Yeah. It never yeah. occurred to me that they weren't all singing, but there was this Bobby Brown docu-series on uh, A&E right. here recently. And then yeah. they were, there was a mention in there that, that most of the singing was either done by Ralph, Bobby, or um, Ricky. And that Mike did the, did the, a lot of the rapping and that Ronnie would kind of, I didn't know what Ronnie did. And so I was wondering if they were literally all on every track. So you saying that I was, I'm I, can't, I can't, I mean, I can't say that they were all on every track because I was, in right. The but the one you track, worked on, they were. I, I can definitely say that they all sang in some, I mean, obviously you've got lead singers and background singers and harmony singers and rappers, but in terms of doing vocals, they were all on that track okay. as I recall it. And, um, and, and, and I thought impressive to answer you. Yeah, they're great. Um, okay. I wanted to ask you too about Kim Wilde. Um, yeah. I think you did the Another Step album, and that was yeah. that was the one that had Keep Me Hanging On on it. That was, as you know, the one that finally broke her in America. And it's really yeah. the only thing anyone in America, I think, casual listeners would even know to this day. This is a shame. Because it I is mean, a shame. Kids and in I America. Was kids speaking in America. Of, oh, yeah. Well, everywhere. Yeah. I mean, she's like Kylie Minogue everywhere else, but she's right. only this one hit thing here. I'm wondering if talking about mandates, like we were talking about earlier, is the label coming to you saying, Richard, your job on this is we're finally going to get Kim going in America? What yeah. can, how can you help us do that? And is that why they she covered the Supremes on that one? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I you know, I, sometimes I can sound pretty cynical about the music industry, and and I, and I don't really don't mind sounding cynical about it. But I mean, honestly, Ricky, her brother, did a great job producing her. I don't think they really needed to bring me in. But the way labels think, especially major labels, is you know who's the heart. You know, I, I often felt like they would run their finger down Billboard or on Music Week and 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 go, who's who's in the top five? And they would just call everyone. I mean, I've had calls from major record labels where I go, you know, I'm really not the right producer for that. You know, it's just you should call bloody blah. And and you sometimes wonder what they're thinking. I go, what are they thinking here? You know, because um, it's, it's you know, I mean, I think I'm capable of doing most things, but there's probably somebody who's much better at that than I am because this is what I'm good at. You know what I mean? Right. And right. Um, so I, you know, I, I was thrilled to work with Kim and she, we did that in LA. I remember she came up to our house. We had a big party at our house one, one night when she was there. She's a lot of fun. She's a really, really nice person. And I really enjoyed working with her. I, I think, you know, it was really record label driving that really thinking yeah. 
we'll get this hot producer at the time I was having an unbroken run of hits. And um, I understand that, but I, I frankly, I think that Ricky had done a great job. And, and by the way, with, when you go back to Kids in America, I mean, I think the problem with Kids in America was the same problem as with, with Einstein and Gogo, and that it was just too early. Um, you know, it was like that whole synth pop kind of scene, which we didn't call it synth pop at the time, but right. more recently, landscape's being referred to as synth pop, and I think, I think it's an accurate description. Mm -hmm. But at the time, America was still uh, having a love affair with guitar bands, yeah. and um, it wasn't until MTV, really, mm -hmm. that, you know, when you had this band, I was in the Duran Durans and, and the Cars and people like that on yeah. there, that suddenly America got into... Um, into the synth bands and the bands yeah. that don't even have guitars. Yeah. You know, I was told, you know, you can't have a band without a guitar. I mean, we didn't have, we never had a guitar. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. I, you know, we never, you know, this, we never fully embraced it. Human league broke through right. here and there. And there were some bands like that, but we never did it quite, you know, to the level that the UK did. Um, no, that's right. Speaking of <laughs> synthies. Oh, go ahead. What? Well, funny, uh, you know, an interesting story. Um, the CBS records, you know, which is now part of Sony, I remember one time I got a rejection for a band that I submitted to them. It was a guitar band, a great band. This was kind of like mid eighties. Mm. And they said, no, it's only two person synthesizer. In fact, they said two man synthesizer. Mm. Bands are happening. <laughs> it's like, that's pretty politically. Erasure, Pet Shop Boys, OMD. That, that's yeah. what they're doing right now. Uh, that's what they're doing. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I've got a guitar, not happening. Yeah. Naked but, eyes. Okay. got it. Speaking of synth stuff. What specifically did you do on Visage's Fade to Grey? So uh, what I did on that was the Fairlight programming and and some of the drum programming as well um, for Rusty. And Rusty, I actually taught Rusty to play drums. We've been friends since he was 14 and um, and we're still friends to this day. And he called me and asked me, he knew I had a Fairlight and he said, you know, can you do some Fairlight stuff for this album? And they were recording at May Mayfair Studios, which is where we, Rusty and I had recorded the shark stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I actually had a home studio. And so I threw together some stuff on the Fairlight, recorded it on some quarter inch tape and took it into 
Mayfair and they spun it onto the record. And then I also did some drum programming for him on the Simmons because it was early days with the Simmons and, it, you know, my, the Simmons, the original SDS-5 that I had and that I still have is um, was just a piece of wood with a bunch of wires and mm-hmm. you know, circuits screwed onto it. And you had to actually adjust everything with a screwdriver and you used to, you know, usually in the course of three or four hours, have to pull out a soldering iron and fix something. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it was pretty wild. Uh, it was fun. So I did that. That's what I did. I mean, Rusty basically played all the drum stuff. I just did all the programming for it, all the okay. what they would call sound design these days. Um, yeah. that, that term hadn't really been invented at the time. That, um, I mean, that song still sounds sort of futuristic and space age. It, even though it's so of its time, it still transcends its time too. Right. I'm just imagining anytime that song gets played somewhere and you're remembering being back there, but you know, footsing with uh, chords and buttons and programming yeah, things yeah. and stuff like that, yeah. how on a computer, that must be crazy. Um, okay. There is a band of, that you worked on that I want to, I'm, I've always been really, really curious about. That's King. I love the Steps in Time album. One of my favorite projects of all time. I love that. Yes, album. yes. They should have gone on to be hugely successful, but that's another record label success um, problem. What happened there was they did two albums, and then the record label said to Paul, you know, you should do a solo album. And, and I said to um, Perry, the manager, I said, fine to do a solo album, but make a third album because – you know, the band is not at its peak. They were huge. I mean, they were playing like huge venues around Europe and stuff like that, but they hadn't broken America and they they didn't really have enough, you know, hits. I mean, we had quite yeah. a lot of hits off those first two albums, but they hadn't really had enough to do a really bona fide sort of, you know, best of album. Yeah. Yeah. And so I always think you need three or four albums under your belt in order to, in order to really be able to put together a really great best of, and and there needs to be quite a few hits off of those. Yeah. And but they never did. And so Paul made this great album with Dan Hartman, um, which didn't do very well. And and you know it's 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 really an interesting thing in the music industry. You know, you, Mick Jagger did several solo albums, but they never did as well as the Stones albums. Mm-hmm. And and it's not like everybody doesn't know who Mick Jagger is. But once you've got a brand established like the Rolling Stones. You know, to break out of it, I mean, look at Tony Hadley. I mean, Tony's not yes. a big standout. Perfect example. I mean, he's doing very well. Yeah. And and I think he's a lot happier on his own. But yeah. um, but but at the same time, that if standout when standout 
got back together and did that American tour and worldwide tour, they, the huge numbers they were doing. Yeah. So once you build a brand like that, it's really hard to break out of that brand. And I think that's what happened to Paul, really. I think it was yeah. a real shame that King broke up and didn't continue on and make, even if they made the, you know, fourth, you know, third, fourth, and fifth albums with somebody else, I think they yeah. would have gone hugely successful. I agree. Um, did you just say that Paul, I don't think I've heard Paul's solo album. Did you just say he made it with Dan Hartman? Like yeah. I can dream about you, Dan Hartman. Yeah, yeah. And, and America. Dan's one of my favorite songwriters of all time. I had and, no and, idea they worked together, and I love them both. Living in America with James Brown, one of yeah, one of, the great of course, doing great production. Yeah, um, yeah, he did. Yeah, that's my recollection. Anyway, I gotta sure. get that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Love and Pride is having some success over here. Taste of Your Tears off the second album gets played a little bit on alternative radio. I love one of my favorite things on any album is on the steps into time album fish as the opening track and the fish reprise as the closing track. I assume that's just Paul on the piano. It is gorgeous. And I always think this is how I wish every album started and ended as strongly as these songs bookend this album, you know? Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I loved making those records and, um, the, the, you know, the, um, Paul has an amazing voice. The band yes, is so soulful. Um, yeah, incredible. Um, it was like the logical next move for me after Spandau. I, mean, I had done some other things in between, but this, when Perry brought me that, I was like, oh, yeah, this is incredible. Yeah. And I like the whole look, you know, the whole spiky hair and the, and yes. the, and the, and the, and the, um, the Doc Martens, the, yeah. the painted Doc Martens. Um, it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we they, they were basically sponsored by Doc Martin. Really? Just <laughs> <laughs> to get boxes and boxes of Doc Martin's delivered. Where is Paul? Do you keep in touch with him? I, I I spoke to him probably about, oh gosh, I don't know how long ago. It might be 20 years ago now. But, oh, really? Um, quite a while back. And he, he went to MTV. So a friend of mine from New Zealand, Ren Hansen, wound up being, wound up being the founding head of, MTV UK mm. and eventually wound up being CEO, uh, chairman or whatever, I think CEO of MTV Europe. And, um, and, and he, I'd known him when I was a kid and, and we talked about it and I don't know whether, how the connection happened, but somehow Paul wound up being one of the, um, one of the VJs on MTV UK. Yeah. yeah. And I think MTV Europe ultimately, yeah. and apparently very good. I never actually saw him, but apparently very good. And, um, and then I think now he's doing production stuff. I think probably out of that experience that uh, um, I think he does 
produces uh, you know video okay. stuff. I'm not sure exactly what details, but yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to be in touch with him again. Me too. I've tried really to nice find guy. him several times. I've even contacted people that wrote articles on him or something to try and track him down. And I've never been able to, and I would love to hear his story. I, I called him at one time and I said, I, I could get you another deal if you wanted. And he wasn't that he wasn't interested. Really? I, think, I don't know what happened, but I had this with a couple of people, actually. They just, they have an experience in the music industry. It, it, they have some success. Uh -huh. And then they're just like, yeah, I kind of just want to disappear back into normal life, you know? Wow. Wow. I well, I hope I, I find I, him someday. If I yeah. do or you do, let's help. Let's tell each other. Um, I definitely will, John. Okay. I yeah. another one, uh, uh, kind of an oddity. Well, I say oddity, but you're the guy from Einstein and Gogo, so that's not really an oddity. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the nails, uh, eighty-eight oh, yeah, lines, yeah. about forty-four women. Deborah was a Catholic girl. She held out to the bitter end. Carla was a different type. She's the one who put it in. Mary was a black girl, and I was afraid of a girl like that. Susan painted pictures sitting down like the Buddha sat. Reno was an aimless girl, a geographic memory. Kathy was a Jesus freak, she liked that kind of misery. Vicky had this special way of turning sex into a song. Kamala, They're from here in Boulder. I live in Denver, but they're from Boulder, Colorado. Wow. Yeah. How did you get, how, you produced that song, right? Yeah. I, I just got approached by the label to do it and I thought it was amazing. So yeah, I, I did it. And um, I did that in London. I had a studio. Oh. I, I had a studio that I, I shared, I, Man for Man, um, who was a, big sort of influence on me when I was a kid. Um, he had a studio on the Old Camp Road in London. And so I had, you know, rented a, a space, the, the big room in that was an amazing, it was an old soap factory. And no matter what you did, it always smelled of soap. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, I, I seem to remember doing it there. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a very mm. odd track, but I think yeah. a really great track. Personally, I loved it. Yeah, I do too. Uh, I think they only ever put out like one or two albums and then they were done yeah. too. And I've always wondered really what happened weird. to them. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. I got to ask you about Shriek Back because yeah. I'm curious, you did the Go Bang album and I remember okay. Intoxication getting a lot of airplay where I grew up in Salt Lake City. The capacity for innocent enjoyment isn't the kind of thing you learn out of your book. There's a river of sensation running deep and wet and wide And you swim it when you see it And you see it when you do not need to look Intoxication Got in the wine Intoxication Everything all of the time Intoxication In every cell What's
around in ecstasy for hours. Feeling the current start to suck us from below. And I love that. I do too. But that album was sort of a departure from them. And it, uh, again, I keep going back to this idea of what's the job? What's the mandate? Here, so, this uh, sort of avant-garde, artier band yeah. is, I'm wondering if, your mandate is to let's make them more commercial. We want to get them played on the radio. That was it. And intoxication is the thing. hundred percent. We want to, we actually have five tracks off of that album on the modern rock charts. Oh, um, nice. Billboard. They were called modern rock at the time. And um, at the same time, like in the, in the top 10, wow. um, they, I mean, Barry, this, you know, lovely guy. Yeah. He, he, I think he hates that album. And, <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I don't blame him. I mean, uh-huh. the thing is, that that, well, that was a classic case of a band, you know, it was signed to a label and the label got to a point, I, I can't remember how many albums they were in, but they're like, we have to have a hit or yeah. we're, we're out, you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. they brought me in and it was a bit of a struggle, to be honest with you, because Barry's got a very strong kind of art, which I respect, but that wasn't what I was brought in for. Mm-hmm. And um, But the real sad story there is that we... Um, uh, we made that in the Bahamas at, at mm. Compass Point, um, mm. Island, Island Studio. They said to me when I went to it, it was January, they said, they said, so do you want to do this at um, Island Basing Street, like in, you know, in London, um, you know, in January? Or do you want to do it in the Bahamas? I'm like, let me think about that for a second. Can I have a couple of weeks to think on that? Yes. Um, <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh Anyway, we did it there, and um, you know, my job there really was to kind of clean it up and polish it up. I mean, I didn't really change it. I didn't change the music that much, but you know, Barry would lay something down and it'd be all very loose, and he 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 liked it like that. I'm like, yeah, yeah but that's not the way radio records work. You know, they, yeah. they have to be really right, and then no no looseness, no timing problems, no pitch problems, things like that. Yeah. And yeah. so that's what we did. And I think, you know, I mean, I don't think it was a, I don't think it was a very great experience for him, but the really sad part was we delivered the record. And I think a week before it was due to come out, the A&R guy who brought me in and who really loved the record and believed in it, he died. Just oh. a young guy, like 36 years old or something like that. Oh. And um, it was incredibly sad. So wow. it's amazing the kind of things that can go wrong in a career. You know, you always wonder why did this band, you know, disappear? Why did this record not make it when it clearly is a great record? Yeah. You know, Intoxication is a, is a hit all day long. So good. It's yeah. so good. It's, so it's like, good. It's, it's, got, it, it's got, I mean, what I was trying to do is retain the art feel of the group, but make it, make it you know, commercial property at the yeah. same time. And, and I, I felt like I achieved that. I mean, again, Barry, you know, I don't I think any amount of polishing was going to be bad for Barry. Right, right, and I respect right. that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, but there's, you know, it's amazing. That there's so many, it, it's almost a miracle when something actually does wind up being successful and launching a career, really, because there's just unlimited amounts of things that can go wrong uh, yeah. along the way. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. You <laughs> So intoxication was my introduction to that band. And so I remember when it came out, I'm in high school or junior high or whatever, and I, I get the CD and um, I like it. And then I think, well, what else is Shriekback done? Let's find out more. 
And you realize that everything prior to that doesn't sound much like that album. It's no, not no, that no, no, no. dancey. And I was like, no. what is this? So weird. Now, of course, I appreciate all of it. It took me a oh, while, me though. At the time, yeah. I was expecting, you know, hundreds more intoxications. And that's not what happened at all. Well, I, my, I tell you, my favorite track on that record, not because of commercial appeal, but it's Under the Wire. I just love Ooh, that good one. Track. Over, yeah. Is it over the wire or over the wire? Over the wire. Uh, I think um, it's over the wire. Over the wire, yeah. It was, yeah. It was basically like, um, it was, I think it was a comment on Vietnam, you know, when, yeah. the, when the Viet Cong would come over the wire and they were in the camp and it was scary moments. Good one. Oh, good call. Um, okay. Tell me about working with Kate Bush. She's all over the news right now and you're on the Never Forever album, I believe, right? Yeah. yeah I, and- was supposed to be, I was supposed to be on Running Up a Hill, actually. She, she asked me to work on that album and i couldn't because i was i don't remember what i was working on i was working on something else and um i think it was our own stuff actually landscape and i, I was really committed to doing that and i, I loved working with kate I and mean, she was such a blessing such a beautiful yeah. human being and um, um we, we, we did never forever at abbey road um i had one of the i had there were three fair lights that came out of australia i had actually when i heard about the fair light had flown to australia to see it and and then peter gabriel started importing them he had one i had one and the um uh the distribution company they set up had one and so i think she called peter originally to to do the fairlight stuff and he was obviously deep in his own career so he he referred her to me and uh, so john waters and i did all the programming on that i remember we stuck the the, the fairlight was a, a mini computer. It wasn't. It wasn't like you know a, a laptop or a you know a normal PC. It was. It was big. I mean, yeah. I had a BMW at the time, and it just fit in the trunk. And um, I remember driving to Abbey Road, and every time you moved the damn thing, you had to like open it up and and, and screw everything back in because oh, wow. all the boards would move. Yeah. <laughs> if you weren't good with a screwdriver and you didn't know anything about electronics, you kind of couldn't be. You couldn't do Uh-oh. electronic stuff back in those days. It was just yeah. like, you know, things, yeah. it was the most common thing was you'd that plug was, it in and it wouldn't, it wouldn't work, you know? <laughs> that's all part yeah. of the job back then. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was totally yeah. part of it. But it was fun, you know, there was nothing, you know, on the floor with a screwdriver, you know, trying to figure <laughs> out why, why it's not working. And, um, but anyway, so she was just great. And 
Uh, I think it was the first time that Fairlight Air was ever used on it. It was the first time it was ever recorded um, and using its sampling function. So we we got like plates and glasses from the kitchen in Abbey Road. I don't think they ever knew this. And we had like a, a paving stone in the, in the control room and we were just throwing these glasses and plates on the, on, on the paving stone and recording them breaking. And that's all the breaking sounds at the end of Babushka. Yeah. Um, And then, really, and then, yeah, yeah, we we smashed all the, we smashed a lot of stuff up that day, um, just trying to look for the right sounds. And then yeah. we, would, we would sample them, and then we would program them onto the Fairlight and sort of stack them up. So you'd be playing like you know nine finger chords, yeah, um, with all these breaking glasses. Um, so that was a lot of fun. And then Patty, her brother, brought in. He had like an arsenal of guns. I mean, they they have a farm and. Oh. Um, so then we sampled all those and then stacked those up and played them on the fair like and that's the rhythm part in Army Dreamers. It's no, cocking right. the rifle, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ, it wasn't enough. 
Yeah, you know, so it, it, it was it was very very exciting because I've never been able to do this before. This was yeah. this was the first time you'd ever been able to digitally sample something and play it back and sort of make music with something that was non-musical. Yeah. So yeah. Um, and she was just such a delight. She's such a beautiful person, and she's so talented. And it was um, uh, I've got John Kelly was. Mm co-producing with an incredible engineer who I knew from my studio work. He, he, I met him first at Air Studios, um, which was George Martin's studio. Mm -hmm. And um, and Abbey Road, of course, was where George Martin produced the Beatles. So there's a strong connection there. Yeah. Um, and John was an amazing engineer. I remember sitting in the back of the room while we were doing the programming, just listening back to the tracks and just being so overwhelmed by how beautiful that record was. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I would have loved to have worked on the next record and running up that hill, but you know, there's only so many hours in the day and so of many course, weeks in the year, right? Of course, of <laughs> course. I uh, recently talked with Stephen Taylor, uh, who yeah. uh, worked alongside Rupert Hine for many years. Rupert's been right. on here a couple of times too before he passed. Mm -hmm. But um, Stephen has been working very closely with Kate for about the last 20 years or so. And he right. was saying one of the things that is you don't really produce Kate Bush. Not she produces herself. She totally. comes in with a very clear vision of what she wants and all. And so when you talk about things like the gun and the uh, and the glass breaking and stuff like that, are these ideas that are coming from her head in the studio? Totally. 100%. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I was so impressed by her. I mean, not only is she, first of all, she's a nice person. The first thing that happens when you go in and she asks you if you want a cup of tea. And then she goes and gets a cup of tea. And she'll give you, like, biscuits, as they call uh -huh. them, you know, cookies, you know. And, um, you know, I mean, this is Kate Bush. She was a huge, huge artist in, in the UK by that time. And um, she, but she knows exactly what she wants. It's in her head. She hears it. She's an incredible musician. But beyond that, what I think is really remarkable about her is that she she gets the like the new technology. She got the new technology immediately. Yeah. She understood yeah. the power of the Fairlight. But the, the, that original Fairlight, the first one, was pretty crappy sounding. Really, it, mm. it would only the sounds would only go up to eleven kilohertz, which is like half the the bandwidth of human hearing, and um, and it would only do thirty second samples. And I, I I showed the Fairlight to a lot of people, and I you know who were interested in it because I had the first one, and um, and most of them were like oh yeah, but it doesn't sound like timpani or it doesn't sound like a trombone or well no it doesn't. But if you want a trombone, get a trombone player, you know. <laughs> And, but what Kate got was, yeah, it doesn't sound like a trombone or it doesn't sound like we, Patty came in, he brought also a bunch of like Irish instruments in with him and we sampled those. But what she got was, it doesn't sound like the original, but what it creates a, a new sound, something that's different, you know, it's like yeah. it adds kind of sheen to things. Yes. It takes something away and it adds something. And she totally got what was special about that. And, you you know, we didn't even have a conversation about it. She just understood it and she immediately applied it. And I was super impressed by that. Yeah, she's amazing. I'm so glad she's, she's finally getting, I mean, she's been a legend for a long time, but a whole new generation of people are recognizing what a legend she is right now. Well, she's having yeah, a I mean, moment she, and I'm she, so glad. She didn't like to fly. And that's I, I'm, my understanding. That's why she didn't tour. And I always say, it's like Tori Amos had Kate Bush's career and mm, good America. point. Ooh, interesting. <laughs> yes, yeah. very good point. I mean, she um, would have been gigantic here if she'd have ever. She would have. Yes, she would have. Um, I wanted to ask you about too about when in Rome. 
I had Clive Farrington on here. In fact, he was one of my very first guests. And right. when he was talking about that period, you probably, I mean, he, he talks pretty openly about being really strung out on drugs at that time, <laughs> yeah. a lot yeah. of drugs everywhere. And yeah. uh, he's clean now, but you almost get the, get the sense that like, boy, those were good times for Clive Farrington. So I wondered what it was like making that song, making that album specifically the promise. It was the only album they ever made. He still is out there playing in 80s shows. I've seen him several times and yeah. he'll do like a 10 minute version of the promise. And that's, that's his whole job for the day. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, it, it, the, I have really, I really loved working on the record. I made that record in Santa Monica, actually um, at control room. She is in Santa Monica. And um, they were delighted to work with. I mean, I never had any problems. I, I've had bands where, the drugs were such a problem. I had to call a label and say, I can't finish this record. You know, yeah. and that one guy, who really talented guy who just he would show up like strung out been up all night you know we were in LA I think he slept with 17 women in 16 nights or something like that and I, I used to say I used to say there's a shortage of cocaine in this town when these people are around you know I said, it was unbelievable yes. and, I, and I'm not a I've never been a drug person I don't yeah I'm, never done cook or anything like that. But I mean, you know, it's, it's what I, I don't pass judgment on anybody for whatever sure. they want to do. You know, do it. But the, the main thing for me was if you're making a record, concentrate on the record, you know? Yeah. And, um, but I never, but when and Rome were, were a delight to work with. They weren't, I didn't have any sense that they were strung out during the okay. record. That's for sure. Okay. And what they do in their own time after I'm, after I leave the studio is totally up yeah. to them. As long as they show up the next morning, bright eyed and yeah. bushy tailed and they did. Um, I, like I said, I've had some bands though, and in some yeah. ways, like, I mean, frankly, any. <laughs> I have a friend who's a producer, and he said to me, he said to me about another band, who shall remain nameless. He said, uh -huh. "Yeah, if you dropped in the Ar Arctic Circle, you'd find the only Eskimo coke dealer." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great! It's, it's, a, it's a problem that producers face. It's one of those kind of un unspoken things. I actually talk about it in my books. I have, yeah. you know, some books out. On yes, music production and um yeah they yeah it's it's a, it's one of those kind of like yeah. they don't teach you that in, in right. <laughs> that's right all the other stuff you got to deal with yeah, yeah it's unfortunate when in rome are split very uh acrimoniously now i, I know Maybe i, know. You know I that, don't yeah. understand why but yeah. i know one of the guys wants to hold on to the name and won't let clive right. have it yet he's not a musician anyway it sounds right. like a mess you you know i hadn't thought to ask this but i am curious did you work with very many? Did you get offered? When I look over your resume, I don't see a lot of rock bands. I no. see a lot of bands that are doing interesting, th interesting things with synths and percussion and dance rhythms and everything we've been talking about. Were you ever approached to do a rock band? Was that attractive to you? 
Um, I was, and I, and, and I made a couple of mistakes there. I mean, rock bands, it depends what you mean, but I was approached right. to do Libra Kell and the New Bohemians. Oh. And, and I didn't do it. And and it wasn't like I turned it down, but, um, there, you know, we just, the negotiations broke down. I didn't do yeah. it. And that was a big regret of mine. But I was, um, Ralph Simon um, who, he, he, from Zamba, who used to manage um, Mutt Lang and everything, he wanted to manage me. And I, I was I didn't go down that road and I probably should have. But he said to me, you need to do rock bands. The problem was in the late 80s, it was it was the hair bands. And I never liked the hair bands. Yeah. And I've always followed the, you know, I mean more power to them, you know, Motley Crue and Poison and everything, but it just was never my thing. Yeah. So for me, it was like I really need to work with things that I like. And um I just never did it. Had it been a different period of I had it been three years later with Nirvana and you know. Mm-hmm. so on you know the Pearl Jam mm-hmm. song I would have been all over it but that period yeah. I wasn't yeah okay that makes sense um one they're not I wouldn't call them a rock band but you did work with America I and did. Um, on the perspective album You know, it's really interesting talking to you about this because I spoke with uh, Steve Levine, the producer Steve Levine recently, and he did an America album as well. And something I think that maybe, I mean, we all have that America's Greatest Hits CD with, you know, Horse With No Name and Ventura Highway. And we think of them as being that. But in the 80s, they were trying to do some challenging things, working with you, working with Steve, incorporating synths incorporating dance stuff you don't think about that when you think of america but they were trying they were and 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 again that goes back to the record labels i think the record labels were doing um the best they could um you know they they were looking i mean because you know you see that happened with a number of bands so like tina turner wound up having that hit with um you know heaven 17 and then that one her career and she did what's love got to do with it which you know she didn't really she allegedly she hated that song right. when she was approached with it. So I, I think you know sometimes the labels are right and sometimes they're wrong. But yeah. um, I think what was happening was America was sort of considered to be past. And but I loved those early records. I mean, I thought they were amazing. So when they asked me to work with them, I jumped at it. And they did. They wanted to use synths and drum machines and things like that. So we did. Um, yeah. We actually worked on one of the very first Mitsubishi X800 32-track digital tape machines. And funnily enough, we were halfway through the project and four seconds across all 32 tracks just disappeared. Oh! So we had to, we had to call Mitsubishi and they had to fly in a technician and they managed to tweak the machine and get the four seconds back. But what? one of the things that 
you know, like with tape machines, things go wrong on tape machines, but it's usually not like that. And yeah. um, but with a digital, with digital, with, we were all pretty new to digital at that time, and it was like, holy shit, it can just go away, right? <laughs> wow. the digital heaven, we call it. Yes. And, or digital hell, depending. Yeah, and, right. <laughs> and, but yeah, I did that at the famous studio in LA. I think it became Ocean Way, um, Western. Um, I'm blanking on the name, but it was an incredible studio, okay. and um, it was really fun working with them. They they were they were great. That's uh, good. Nice, really nice guys. Funny. They have some yeah. stories. They really oh, I believe have. it. Oh, you know they do. Um, okay, <laughs> I only have one or two left here. One thing I was curious about. I I have a real fascination with uh, '80s movie soundtracks, and right. you did a song with a with an artist named Nancy Shanks on the right. About Last Night soundtrack. Yeah. yeah. I was looking her up. I like this song, Trials of the Heart. We both have the feeling that something is wrong. We hide in our silence, pretending we're strong. I don't yeah. think I don't know of another credit of hers. Was this a situation where a label was like, "We've got this young up and coming singer, yeah. let's try and help break her on the soundtrack"? It's exactly right. Yes, she was. Okay. I think she was a Nehemiah America artist. Um, they came to me, and um, you know, she's an amazing voice, really nice person too. And um, you know, we made that one track, and. Funnily enough, I still get royalties for that because I sang some background vocals on that. Really? Um, from, I still get royalties from SAG after on that. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't know why her career didn't go uh, forward, but you know, that's the nature of the beast. You know, unfortunately, most yeah. artists, I mean, it's yeah. a true statement to say that most artists disappear without trace. You know, they don't, yeah. they don't, they aren't successful. And, um, and, and I got to say, some really, really amazing talent. You know, yeah. kind of wasted in a way, which is a yeah. shame. She's it's really unfortunate. Talented. I wondered what the story was there. Um, I wanted to throw this out. We have Patreon supporters, and I let them know who I'm going to interview, and if they want to submit questions, they can. One of them in particular, Philip Hop Hopwood, was wondering if you keep in touch with anyone from the old days. I'm imagining you would, but who are some of the people that have remained friends that you've worked with or produced over the years? Well, I think I think um, to a large extent, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with everybody in the sense that we never fell out. Yeah, that's and true. In, in the Facebook, Instagram world, you know, we're definitely connected. I mean, I I, I talk to Spandau guys. You know, if they're in town, I usually see them. Uh, if I'm in town somewhere, I usually see them. I mean, you know, and I, and I, you know, we exchange. You know, we like each other's stuff on Instagram, whatever. You know, right, right. That, um, that's to, that's that's staying in touch these days. 
That's yeah, what it yeah, is. It is. You know? you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm actually grateful for that. I'll be honest with you. I know yeah. social media gets a bad name, and um, but but I, I've made contact with an awful lot of friends of mine from way back um, on Facebook. Yeah. You know, different parts of the world use different social media. Um, like Facebook's much more popular in other parts of the world than it is in 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 the in the states at this point. Huh. But huh. Um, yeah, no, I I, I do, and and um, in fact, you know. Um, like the guy who told me the story about the Eskimo Coke dealer, um, he just he just contacted me on LinkedIn the other day. I think no was, way! I'm going to be chatting on Zoom over the weekend, probably. Oh, that's great! Yeah. I try not to I try not to lose touch with anybody. And the one yeah. thing I always use when I was managing bands and producing bands, I always say, "Don't burn bridges." Yeah. And I wish I could say it's true that I had never burned any bridges, but generally speaking, try not to burn bridges. Yeah, you know? yeah, good. Um, good. And, and and you know, frankly. As the years go, but I never understand these kind of 30-year feuds that bands had. Because I mean, we had a, in landscape, you know, we had our differences um, toward the end of that period, but we're like really good friends now. Yeah, and good. Um, you know, you it's like you're in the trenches together totally. when you're on the road and doing it. It's just it's just so brutal, and and you you know you have so many hopes and dreams that you're going to succeed and you're going to do well, and then you either do or you don't. But either yeah. way, that's a shared experience that. You yeah. know, it's like no other, really. Yeah, it's that's good I, to hear. I agree. Um, what was, okay, tell me about working with Trevor Horn. He's probably my favorite producer of all time. No offense. Right. Um, yeah. Just because no, 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 that no delicious ear candy sound that he came up with in yeah. the 80s is just, I still love it. I believe yeah. you worked with him on the Buggles stuff, but were you I part did. of what he was doing when he was at SARM and producing those albums at all? Um, so I was, I, I, I first met him, I played on demos for him, um, probably late 70s, I guess. And um, yeah, probably 78 or 79. And um, he used to work at, he used to play in the house band at the Hammersmith Ballroom, I think it was called, um, which is in Hammersmith. And I used to, my band Landscape was playing at the, the Swan, which is a pub that's still there in Hammersmith. And he, in their break in the Hammersmith Forum, they used to come over and watch us. And out of that, he asked me to do a couple of things. And I wound up playing on the Buggles album. And, um, and I was a studio musician at the time. Um, he had, um, he was- Drums, right, I should say? Drum, Is that what you played? Drums, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, but this was before drum machines really hit. But he had this vision for everything being so precise. And, you know, that's why the album was called The Plastic Age. And, you know, it was all very sort of, um, modern and kind of um, machine-like. So he wanted me to play like a machine. And and I was actually pretty good at that because I'd done, uh, my drum teacher at Berkeley, you know, he used to always make you play with a metronome and I always played with a click and, and she, I did a lot of Euro disco stuff and a lot of a lot of disco stuff generally. So I got, I was very good at playing extremely in time. This was another level of travel. I mean, he, he, he wanted everything exactly the same. So every hi-hat, beat had to be exactly the same volume every right. kick drum would be exactly the same volume so you we were doing like 80 takes i mean oh, we started 10 in the morning and we would get it we would finally get the final to and all the musicians on the sessions were all like first and second take players they were yeah. all you know a a a rated studio musicians um but the level of precision was just so high that you know he would just take a long time i mean i thought we'd gotten it like 10 hours ago, but, um, but we kept going. <laughs> and um, 
but the checks were good. Yeah, I bet, I bet, I bet. <laughs> the, the checks were excellent. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, and, but honestly, I mean, he's, he's he, you know, he's very different producer than I am. I used to, I actually used to say, when Trevor has hits in the charts, I don't have hits in the charts. And when I have hits in the charts, he doesn't have hits in the charts because there's a certain sort of glossy, poppy precision that Trevor gets that I don't get. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't strive for. But I admire it. I respect it. And um, and uh, you know, you know, you look at. I, I, I'm a big fan of many, many producers. I mean, you mentioned Steve Levine. I, I think Steve's work's incredible. And um, uh, you know, but you don't necessarily want to sound like them. You want to sound right. like your, your thing. And I, yeah. I have certain things that are, you know, important. I like to be a little bit gritty, a little bit kind of um, edgy, a little bit arty, a little bit avant-garde. Mm-hmm. Obviously, not quite enough for Barry from Shriekback, but <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You, know, you can't win them all, can you? Yeah. Um, but I okay. think, um, yeah. So I mean, but Trevor, Trevor's incredible. I mean, he, he had yeah. a vision, and and you know, he, he had a vision back then. You know, frankly, I mean, still it still holds up to this it day. Does. I mean, it does. It really does. Records, they still they still sound incredible. I think the um, uh, God, my brain just fried um the the one artist i really like the german artist what's the name mm. anyway some great records he made and uh yeah yeah but i mean i mean he would spend days and days and days doing oh yeah I, I would spend like 20 minutes on you know <laughs> that's what i hear from i've yeah. had lots of people that worked with trevor on here and they say yeah. something similar um we do okay so i have two last questions one real quick it it we try to cover the business side of things sensitively on here. You've yeah. worked, we just listed off a million things that you've done that were all great. Some of them more successful than others. When you get a royalty check, what's the biggest earner on there? What's what's the biggest thing that gives you mailbox money? Hmm, that's very interesting. It changes, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. funny, it's funny you mentioned about King because just recently, King has really popped up in my royalty Really? State. Yeah, now it's, what, what's happened is, streaming has really changed everything because time was when you make a record and it comes out and you, you know you're, you're getting these gigantic checks dropping through your mailbox and um and then it gradually drops off you know and you expect that and you go well i gotta produce another hit if i want to get another big check like that and um but then you know when streaming started um you know suddenly it's all about what people play not what people buy and the amounts are very small so you know from spotify you're getting something like 0.037 of a penny, something like that, you know, mm-hmm. like less than half a penny, uh, even less than that. It's a fraction of a penny. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so you need an awful lot. I mean, they say it's something like a million streams on Spotify to make 3,400 bucks. But yeah. that's if you're getting all the royalties. And I'm only getting my producer percentage, which right. might be like 4% or something like that. So right. I'm getting, you know, and, and these are all deals. They're not like the modern deals where you're on these new digital rates, which are much more favorable. And so I'm getting, I'm, you know, you know, I, I, I'm getting a fraction of a fraction of a fraction, basically. Right. Um, but, you know, it still adds up to quite a lot if a lot of people stream it. And um, so King reappeared, but the five stars have been streaming mm. quite strong recently as well. And um, Spandau Valley's, you know, goes up and down depending on yeah. whether they, when they were touring, it went up, when they do greatest hits albums it goes up um but you know it's like the kate bush thing is really a perfect example yeah. of what can happen you know that gets yeah. picked up on stranger things and suddenly it's like making hundreds of thousands of dollars a week yeah no kidding um, crazy. which is incredible but that yeah. can happen with tiktok too you get some 
track on TikTok and suddenly your, your, your royalties jump up. So that's I mean, how my the, kids discover music now is through TikTok. Totally right. I mean, I yeah. don't. I don't even understand that. I mean, I I, I watch TikTok mm-hmm. and I find it amusing. But you know, if, if you, have you ever sat down and with three people and looked at each of their TikToks, they're all completely different. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's true. Yeah, it's what you it's what you like. You know. It's yeah. Like, if you so swipe true. off of it. You know, yeah. If you swipe up quickly, it, it won't send you that kind of stuff again. So it's, like, it's really hilarious. Do it one day. Sit down with your friend. Say, I will. That's some hilarious. People some people won't show you this. Yeah, I believe it. Um, okay, <laughs> let me let me ask you this. Last thing. Did you do something with Thomas Dolby? You worked somewhere yeah, with Thomas Dolby, right? Yeah, what I, did, was I, did, I did some remixes with Thomas. We did that at Ground Control, too, in, in, in Santa Monica. It was right after I did the Winter Rome, if I recall. Um, and um, I've known Thomas for a long time. We, we used to talk back when he was with Lena Lovitch, and, and Landscape was just starting to do the computer thing. And then when I got the first Fairlight, he got a Wave PPG machine, which was kind of a German sort of um, sampling device as well. So we, and then he lived, he lives in Baltimore now, and I have a house in Maryland. So we sort of stayed in touch over the years. I haven't spoken to him in a few years, but you know, every now and then we'll 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 see each other. And he's he's a good guy too. Yeah, um, we've yeah. been really technologically advanced. Yeah. We actually, we, there's actually video of landscape playing. Um, the old gray whistle test, I think, and if I recall, I think Lena Lovish was playing, and Thomas Dolby was playing keyboards with her at the time, and that was before he launched his own career. So, um, but I did some remixes off of his album. I'm Aliens thinking, Ate My Buick, I think. Yeah, that's right. Aliens yeah. Ate My Buick, which is yeah. a great album. And yeah. he wanted some twelve-inch mixes, so I did some twelve-inch mixes for. Okay, him. I think that album yeah. had Airhead on it. That was the hit, so right. I probably did Airhead. Okay. I did Hot Sauce, I think it was. Oh, it? Hot Sauce, good one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Okay. That's a long time ago. Yeah, I bet. Well, this Richard, we, I mean, I just covered, the, this is one section of your career, all the books <laughs> and the boards you're on and the jobs you have and the things you've invented. That's a whole other thing, which we didn't even get it. I did hear you on Martin Ware's podcast recently because he's uh-huh. been on here as well. And right. you guys covered a lot of the gear on there, but there's so much. And I just want, I, all we got to was the music, which was good enough for <laughs> me. But thank you. You've obviously done so much good stuff that's improved my life. Thank you for being you. Well, I really appreciate that, John. Thank you. Um, thank you for being you and liking the stuff I did. Because I tell you what, it's really bizarre. You never know. You know, you make these records and it's like, God knows if anyone's going to like it. I always just... <laughs> 
my, my philosophy was always if I like it, there's probably a million people out there that will like it too. Yes. And that's kind of turned out to be true. So, yeah. Yeah. Apparently, uh, you know. <laughs> well, a lot of it made huge impressions on me. So, thank you, Richard. Well, I really appreciate that, John. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. All right. There you have it, Richard James Burgess. I love that guy. I love so much music that he's worked on. And you remember in there when we were talking about, I was saying how I think uh, the King Steps in Time album beginning with Fish and then ending with that Fish reprise is just a perfect way to start and end an album. That's why you're listening to the Fish reprise right here. The thing is, it's really short, so I got to get through this really quickly before it ends. Anyway, next week's guest is the front man for one of the great... Uh, if unsung British alternative rock bands of the 80s, early 90s, most of their true success was in the early 90s. They have are experiencing a bit of a resurgence right now, uh, going on an anniversary tour, releasing a box set. I've always loved this band, even though they're not quite a household name, but you might remember them. Huge thanks, as always, to Yana Mankiewicz, my right-hand man, for everything. Thank you, buddy. He's even on vacation in Spain right now, guys, doing this anyway. Bless his heart. You guys can like our Facebook page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And there should be another book club episode coming out this weekend. It's probably the last one for a while anyway. I gotta, <laughs> I've been reading a lot. Still doing it too. Anyway, probably the last book club for a little while. But it's a really, really good one. All right? Thanks, folks. We love you. Talk to you soon. Cause